Welcome to the Professional Services Pursuit, a podcast featuring expert advice and insights on the professional services industry. I'm Banu, and today's episode is a recording from our final LinkedIn Live session from our four-part series that Brent and I hosted. In this fourth session, Brent and I had a fantastic conversation with Kentata's Chief Product Officer, Jared Halleck which was the perfect wrap-up to the series, the goal of which was to help our listeners uncover some great insights on how to future-proof your professional services business. In this session, we discussed how evaluating the right technology investments has shifted and why it's so important to make those decisions beyond an ROI-only focus and take a more holistic approach. We hope you enjoy the conversation. Before we kick this off, Jared, I'm sure the listeners want to know a little bit more about you, your background, if you could. Yeah, sure. Just a, just a bit of background on myself. So as Manu said, I'm the chief product officer for Cantata, and I look after our Cantata OX product line. My background is, you know, I've been in technology. This is in terms of building products. As I was just actually thinking about this as you asked me to give a, a brief introduction. My third decade, I guess you could say, built products with a small company early on in the early 2000s, and then been leading product since then and spent a lot of my time in particular in the sales technology space with a real focus on AI. And then more recently, about three and a half years ago, joined Mavenlink, which ultimately became Cantata. So one of the things I'm super excited about for this discussion is I've lived a lot of the lessons, at least from a technology perspective, in terms of the shifting landscape and the implications of that shifting landscape, moving towards, I'd say, more of a balanced approach, sort of less on just pure raw numbers, ROI, and adding in you know, more of a balanced approach in terms of driving success at the individual user level and managing the individual experience of people using technology. That I've seen, and I'll share you know, as we get into the discussion from more experiences about how that shaped my perspective. And that's just something I've had a deep interest in. My experience has really been also B2B SaaS, right? So the products that I've looked after uh, and built and shipped and created for the market are really focused on serving B2B needs, which I think is relatively unique in terms of its set of challenges versus, let's say, B2C products. So that's a bit about my background. Excellent. Thank you. During this series, we've delved into some topics around trends and predictions for 2023, some of the potential business uncertainty around that. And one topic that's come up repeatedly, both with research as well as clients, as you know, is labor volatility. And, you know, still in the midst of some uncertainty and certainly news headlines being dominated by right-sizing, refactoring of talent, certainly some uh, reduction in force in some large players, the labor volatility and challenges firms have acquiring and ultimately retaining good employees is still really prevalent. Gartner noted in the top strategic technology trends for 2023 that they went as far as to say that through 2025, employee value metrics like well-being, wellness, burnout, brand satisfaction with their platform will override ROI evaluations in as much as 30% of successful growth investment decisions. So what is it about, in your estimation, traditional ROI evaluations that have the potential to shortchange the impacts that could be had on employee experience, but conversely impact customer experience? 
And in your observation, particularly in your role, and I think our participants will really be interested in your insights, what are businesses in the professional services industry that are so reliant on talent and clients missing out on if they miss these impacts? Yeah, Brent, that's a, there's a lot there to dig into. Maybe I'll just start with one comment that you were, I think, leaning into, which is we have a bit of a different economic climate now than, let's say, the run-up and some of the things that maybe led us here. I think that prediction from Gardner is really important for the audience to understand is that people who may revert to sort of less employee-centric or less focus on employee experience, particularly as it relates to the technology and the technology propelling employees versus, in their view, being in their way. I think people who you know, might view this new economic climate as a way to maybe regress, I think they do so at their peril. And I think that's a pretty important you know, takeaway and, and I'll get into some of the reasons why. So maybe we could just back up and I could share a bit of perspective on sort of how I've seen this unfold over the last, mm, let's call it three quarters of a decade or so. I had an experience that this was probably the big light bulb moment for me. It was late 2013 and 2014. Again, like I mentioned, I was in the sales technology space and we had a product that was really aimed and it was incontrovertible how much value a company would get out of implementing the solution that we had built and it would drive revenue. And we saw this shift right around 2013 and 14, where our customers started to come back to us and say, Hey, look, it's not working. And we'd ask them, well, why is it not working? <laughs> and say, we can't get our, we can't get our users to really fully engage. And I'll never forget in 2014, we were working with a customer and I was sitting at dinner in the city in San Francisco and our executive sponsor was like, I don't, I can't continue to push this uphill. And that was a real pivot point in the, the thinking of sort of how to build and deliver software because we, we realized that we had this great value proposition that was a value proposition for the buyer of the software, for the leaders. And ultimately, maybe in generations past, you could easily get users to use solutions by essentially mandating it through mandate uh, and force. But for whatever reason, that shifted, that changed. And the best that I can come up with is that that year was actually a really pivotal year because you think about what 2014 meant. The intended target users of a lot of the software that gets distributed out, particularly in a B2B context, are the largest distribution of users are generally earlier in their career. These were the generation of people that 1999, you know, they would have been you know, seven to 10 years old. And that would have, you know, they grew up on a computer and then 2007 came the iPhone and then 2009 came the Android device. And by 2014, 15, 16, they were entering the workforce as early as 2012. So that was kind of right in that sweet spot of sort of the digital native as, as it's referred to the late millennials, early Gen Z that just weren't going to take it. They wouldn't stand for poor technology in the, in the workplace. And as much as you wanted to force them to use it, they wouldn't. And so that was kind of a big wake up and aha moment for me. And so we started digging into some of the generational dynamics around millennials and now more recently Gen Z and what their expectations are in the workforce. One of the things that we learned, and this is this is a study that was done by other groups out there. I think this was Dell EMC who put this together that nearly half of millennials said they would quit uh, a job over substandard technology in the workplace, right? These are some of the driving factors. You have a generational change, which along with that came with different experiences that they had growing up. So their expectation of how technology should serve them in the workplace was very, very different. 
I would just note also that there's another factor, again, kind of setting up the stage for be careful about how you view the world going forward from here in spite of current economic conditions. Another reason why there's, in my view, and as I've studied the problem, is that when you look at the demography data across the world, their demographers aren't expecting populations in industrialized countries to increase. In fact, it's the opposite. They'll be decreasing based off of birth rates in industrialized countries going down over the last 40 years. So you combine this generational shift, you combine some of the macro impacts of sort of the change in population complexion that we've, that we'd see. And even in spite of downturn in the market, I think talent is going to be a perennial challenge. It'll be a greater challenge in some markets versus others, uh, like professional services where talent is the core unit of measurement and relative to being able to be successful. So then, Brent, maybe just to get to the last point of your question, which is why why is it that ROI you know, is maybe not as important to some organizations where they're trying to create a balanced approach? And I think what has, has occurred um, as a part of this generational shift is there's a practical element here as well. We've talked about some, let's call big rock you know, forces. There's some little rock forces as well. And that is, is that the practicality of that ROI showing up is 100% dependent on your users, not organ rejecting the solution. In other words, if they don't use the solution, data doesn't flow in, the ROI never shows up. And so one of the things that as I'm talking to customers that I'm hearing, and I'm sure many in the audience either feel this way or they've heard it from on the receiving end like I did, which is, hey, ROI, look, we've already done our homework. We know that there's ROI here. We wouldn't be talking to you if that, were, if that weren't the case. We already have a hypothesis around ROI. We've down-selected to a handful of solutions that ultimately we're trying to understand whether or not we can get our, our users on board. Will this be a good experience for our users? So I think that's like the last element that I would add in there is that where ROI has the potential to be shortchanged is, is if you're only focused on ROI, keep in mind that ROI won't show up if you can't muscle through the change management. And at the same time, your users are expecting more. The software needs to be easier, needs to be familiar, needs to be something that propels them that they can see helps them accomplish their jobs to be done versus getting in their way, which is, I think, unfortunately the case with a lot of legacy solutions, particularly in the B2B space. So before we dive into the next question, Jared, let me just take a step back and ask our audience to feel free to put any questions in the chat. We love to make this interactive and We'll respond to your questions as they come up, or if we can't, we'll definitely follow up. So just just a note to audience. But um, Jared, professional services decision makers agree that their industry has unique needs compared to other industries, right? And as you know, we did a study at Cantata, and in that study, 77% of business leaders in the industry agreed that they are limited when technology vendors provide generic solutions versus very purpose-built, targeted solutions. How can we be making the right technology investments that align with those unique industry-specific needs to allow for optimization of employee experience? How is that critical in that employee experience? This is a really interesting topic, Banu, because this is as you know, at Cantata, we sit as a vertical SaaS provider. That's how we sort of classify ourselves. In other words, we provide software as a service for a specific vertical, right? So we're purpose-built for a vertical. And if you want to call this movement vertical SaaS, this is one of the major waves occurring. And I put it on the same level as you know, movement to the cloud as a major wave in compute. 
AI is a major wave in compute. This is one of the major waves and trends that'll, I think, continue to take us and propel us forward. And all those reasons that I talked about earlier relative to the rising expectations of employees in terms of their relationship with the technology that they're given to do their job, their expectations are much higher. And I think that's, again, all of this is interconnected, right? It's an unassailable point that you can provide a better experience for someone if you have a purpose-built solution for their job, their role, their industry. And when you provide generic solutions, you're ultimately, you know, serve too many, too many customers. I always tell people that, you know, if anyone's interested in learning more about product and how to build products, the principal question of product, many people misunderstand. They think it's about what it is you're building or how it is you're building and sometimes even when it is you're going to deliver it. But none of those are the, are actually the principal question of product. The principal question of product is who, who are you building for? Right. And the challenge that many, many organizations have, and I think this is just, I mean, there's a lot of reasons why this has been the case, some of which are sort of technology limitations. Some of them are just people's perspective on the world is that most technologies are not willing to constrain the who and define who they're serving with uncomfortable precision. We're starting to see that change with vertical SaaS becoming one of the next waves in computing. And it's really aimed at two things. It's actually aimed at doing two things. Number one, taking the benefits that buyers and the people who are the leadership, you know, who, who are purchasing the solution, taking that ultimate return on investment to the next level. And, you know, it's easy to imagine how if a solution is purpose-built for a specific industry, that would be a benefit to the users as well, because now it's actually honed in on their job to be done. And you know, I think we've seen the shift to vertical SaaS occur earlier in some industries versus others, you know, and those would be industries that are generally more highly regulated or they're more specialized in nature. This trend towards vertical SaaS has been occurring longer, but we're starting to see more and more industries sort of rally around purpose-built solutions. So I think to the question that you asked, I think this is a very important strategy that organizations need to be thinking about in terms of how do they meet the needs of the people who are purchasing the solution and the people who have to use the solution on a daily basis as close to a magic silver bullet as you can find is a vertical solution or a purpose-built solution for users. User experience, what a concept, optimizing user experience, right? I mean... We're, all, we're always headed in this direction. I, I'm actually frankly surprised it's taken this long. And I think there are some reasons for that. But now the barriers to entry for you know, new entrants to come in and really focus on carving off specific slices of these larger platforms that are more horizontally focused. Previous eras, it may have been more expensive, more cost prohibitive to do that. But, you know, just the way technology has evolved, this is absolutely the direction things are headed. And, and by the way, just, just to maybe share with the, the audience, the kind of benefit, again, we talked about if you ignore your employees and what they want out of technology, and think that you have kind of a free pass because it, you know, shifting to be a little bit more of an employer's market versus employee market, you do so at your peril because there's some structural reasons why employees, I think, are still going to drive a lot of the value for businesses and for their customers. That's another point that Brent brought up. The other thing I think people can do at their peril is not at least take a look at what vertical or purpose-built solutions are aimed at their industries. Because the incremental benefits of a purpose-built solution, if you look at the work that Forrester has done just on the services solution, 
it's astronomical. The increased benefit of using a purpose-built solution over a horizontal solution or a cadre of stitched together solutions. So I think, you know, for the audience, if you're looking to, you know, maintain the competitive edge in your market and you're not already evaluating purpose-built solutions, let me just say it this way, your competition is. So <laughs> I think it'd be wise for everyone to be investigating what's out there that can be a, a boon for your your business and for employees. Now, that's great insight. And I think that parable maybe that you talked about or that evolution of the expectation of the employee for user experience kind of is really relevant, right? They're just not satisfied, complacent, or compliant in adopting a solution that doesn't meet their expectations. That's really key. Mm -hmm. So a question that Gartner posed and, uh, or that we've derived from some of this research, you know, according to Again, this top strategic technology trend report for 2023, they noted that by 2027, more than 50% of enterprises will use industry cloud platforms to accelerate their initiatives. From your vantage point, and of course, you know, we're, we're in an industry cloud environment. What's your take on that prediction and some of the key benefits of investing in an industry cloud platform? from your perspective? So number one, I think that prediction is spot on, maybe even a bit conservative. And I think what you're going to see is you're going to see the emergence of vertical solutions disrupting the horizontal players. And then ultimately the horizontal players, you know, the, I'm talking about the large platforms, let's say the Salesforce's, the SAP's, the Workdays of the world, right? They will ultimately, I think, you know, need and be attracted towards finding, you know, more growth avenues through either acquiring or building their solutions into vertical slices as well. It's inevitable. Like I said, I think it's surprising that it's taken as long as it has, because just when you think about the benefits, they're just so stark in, relative to a horizontal solution. In our world, I'll just give you a, a really simple example from the services space. So for those who are tuning in, you probably have some context for who Cantata is, but we provide purpose-built technology and we're an industry cloud for professional services organization, right? People who, you know, share their expertise and bill for their time, right? Consultants, design agencies, tech IT organizations, people who are implementing software. So the, these are our customers. And there's a group that studies this space. We're really fortunate. We have this group called SPI that is a boutique analyst firm that studies our space. And they did an assessment of the value of a purpose-built solution over not using a purpose-built solution and the return on investment was incomprehensible. I mean, it was almost, I mean, the way that they kind of built these numbers out. And keep in mind, this is a group that's been studying the space longitudinally over the last 17 years. And so this is not flash in the pan kind of you know, work. This is very thoughtful and considered. And what they had determined is that for a 375-person organization who used a purpose-built solution over the course of five years, the net return on investment would be $32 million on a $100,000 investment, $100,000 per year investment for that particular technology. That's the increase in essentially net profit. This is profit, not revenue, by the way. This is profit over using a horizontal solution. And it's kind of hard to maybe conceptualize that depending on where you sit in your industry or the size of company, $32 million may not sound enough, but keep in mind where the basis is this was a 375 person organization. 
the return on investment there is pretty staggering, right? Um, you're talking, you know, 40, 50 X, you know, if you kind of play that out across other industries, like I said, one of the reasons maybe you heard it in my answer previously is that the differences are stark, right? When you can have a piece of technology that's really, you know, has a point of view related to the actual industry in which you work, or the function and the job function in which you work, things can really, really accelerate. For those who are, you know, in the services space, I suspect, you know, many folks just by nature of who we are, Cantata, who are listening are in the services space. This is going to be another wave uh, on top of digital transformation, right? A lot of the work in services has been, the demand has been driven by digital transformation. There will be another wave of sort of fine-tuning that digital transformation around vertical solutions. So if you're in the services world, uh, that's good news, obviously. So That's great. I wanted to dive in a little bit more because I know throughout this discussion, we've talked about, you know, it's not as simple as just an ROI calculation anymore. And business leaders have to have other considerations as they're assessing their technology. As you know, there is a lot more focus on the investments that are being spent because of the economic situation we're in. And so wanted to dive in and see what recommendations you have as business leaders are looking into technology investments and developing a business case that actually can weather and stand up to the final decision. One approach that I've seen work really well is involve your employees, right? I've seen companies create speed teams or essentially include some sort of employee point of view in the buying process for solutions. And so as solutions are being evaluated, you know, you have, what I mean by speed team is let's say you took 10 people out of your user population that were reflective of, you know, the people that best represent your employees and, and would also ultimately become representatives of the work that's done and, and help to sort of promote the value of it. So it's not just a, you know, there's always this sort of management versus employees dynamic, right? That That's a technique that I've certainly seen a work really well. I think the other thing that I would mention too is being realistic about how much of the elephant you can kind of bite at one time, <laughs> right? It's one bite at a time, taking a phased approach, being realistic about what it is you're going to accomplish. Keep in mind, well, I think one of the things that I'm always surprised by, and it's just a reminder to me that people are in various stages of the journey, but most people are in the earlier stage of the maturity journey, no matter you know what it is and clearly why you know, you're buying technology, you're trying to increase some maturity. And so you're starting at the low end of a maturity curve. And one piece of advice that I might you know share and what I've seen work well is companies actually writing out what their maturity model should look like and where they sit in it and what their expectations should be. And I think it's okay because you know the way that you know a lot of technology solutions are priced or the way you pay for them is you pay for 100 units of functionality. And there's this sort of oh no, I have to use all 100 units, otherwise I'm not getting the value. I think that's the wrong way to look at it. If two units of those 100 units get you enough value to pay for the solution as a starting point, do that. <laughs> you know? Yeah, exactly. Um, don't, don't underestimate. Change is hard, right? Change is hard for everybody, and it's especially hard for a large population of users who are used to doing something one way. So be thoughtful about how much you're trying to push. And then the last thing I would say is, I, I think about this is sort, sort of a product way of thinking about things. So yes, you're buying technology, you're trying to implement it. But if you were to look through the way that people like me build products through that lens, we use three core ways to sort of measure the success of products in a B2B world. So number one is, and everyone's familiar with this one, is adoption. So what are the key adoption metrics that I'm going to be expecting? 
right? And so again, set the target and then set up a framework to measure that adoption. Because remember, the ROI is not going to show up if the adoption doesn't occur. So that's a behavioral metric. Then the second one is an attitudinal metric. So you know, you can do simple things, very simple surveys to use your populations and ask them. And the question I always ask people to ask them isn't, are you satisfied? But is it, if we took this technology away from you, how would you feel? And the the general rule of thumb is, is that you're looking for about 40% of your population, your user population to say, we would be extremely disappointed if you took this technology away from me, right? And that's how you're going to know. And you'll also get an opportunity to collect qualitative information. And then the last one is the value piece. So tracking the ultimate value. So it's behavioral, attitudinal, and value. And so that's a really good framework for you know making sure that you're getting the value, but you're doing it in a way that brings the users along and is listening and empathizing with the needs of users. And that'll ultimately help you improve, right? You can take that feedback back to your vendor, or if you're building the solution in-house, take it to your team in-house to you know, adapt and evolve the solution. Jared, I have to ask you, because we did a very recent podcast on AI, because there's so much discussion and conversation, as you know, yeah. around artificial intelligence and what that means for different verticals and different businesses. So we did a podcast on professional services and impact of AI, but I wanted to get your perspective on clearly different people are dealing with this differently, right? There is anxiety, there is excitement, there's anticipation. But for those who are anxious, those employees that are anxious, automation can be translated to potentially threat and other negative feelings. What is your sense and how do, uh, how do you suggest people deal with that, leaders in specifically? That's an awesome question, Badu. I would say a couple of things regarding this topic. Number one, look, we're on the precipice of a massive sort of change in the way that we think about AI. I've been in, you know, working around AI for over a decade, so it's not a new topic. Uh, we've sort of went through a hype cycle in the early 2010s, and we kind of got to the trough of disillusionment. We're kind of back at another tip of the hype cycle with generative AI. And one of the couple of patterns that I've realized or I've seen out there, number one is, is that keep in mind, AI is a solution, not a problem, right? And going back to what I said earlier, principal question of product is who? And then the next question is, is what are their underserved needs? So focus on the problems. I wouldn't get super worked up over getting left behind or anything like this on the AI piece before you've identified clear problems that an AI solution can help with. This is what happens at the tip of the hype cycle. Everyone starts saying, hey, look at my implementation of chat GPT, but like it has nothing to do with what my users care about. It may actually not actually propel, but people are just so afraid that there's this FOMO, fear of missing out sort of sentiment. So number one is, is know the problem you're solving and make sure that whatever the solution is, is a, if it's an AI solution, great, that's awesome. But make sure you understand the problem. Number two is make sure that your users will trust the solution. <laughs> so they have the problem. You're going to give them a solution. It's an AI solution. One of the things that's really challenging with humans is that we have this sort of trust barrier. And if we can't have at least an inkling of how some kind of you know solution is being presented or why some sort of solution is being presented to us, you know, you're going to have a problem with user adoption. I experienced this through a lot of sort of hard lessons in the sales technology space. If I gave somebody a score that this lead was better to work with than that lead, because this one has a higher probability of close, I could give somebody all the rationale on paper, but they ultimately just never followed it because their AI, you know, in their brain was smarter than the machine. 
And so you have to think about ways to get people to trust it. That's why I think this generative AI is so interesting is that what these companies have done is they've created a user interface that yeah. sort of feels like a lot of people are doing this where they're asking questions that they already know the answer to. And they're like, oh my goodness, this thing's like an Oracle. You know what I mean? And so it's a, it's a really interesting solution relative to helping people understand AI. So that's an example of an implementation of AI that people will trust. And so I think that's another thing that I would leave with folks is don't underestimate how skeptical your users will be about some black box trying to do their job for them. And then the last thing I would say is generally you have to focus on helping taking the hard parts out of people's jobs, right? The mundane, the highly repetitive. And if you can do that, you're not going to have a problem with your users being worried about that because ultimately people want to use their big brains on more complex problems and higher value problems than that. So as you're positioning your AI strategy, position it around those things that sort of take the things that people want to don't want to do off their plate. Those are some really key insights. And it's really great to hear some relevance of someone who's been in the industry and seen, to your point, the hype cycle around AI. So for many folks, it's still sort of a nascent category. And we're seeing it kind of burst onto the scene and general consumption with chat GPT and types of elements that make it look tangible to them. But that insight is really key and, and we appreciate it. This has been just a great discourse. Your insight and your experience is extremely valuable. I think you've given our our listeners some really tactical, relevant insight into the research and kind of parsing through those components. We really appreciate it. And on behalf of Cantata and my co-host, we'd like to thank everyone that's followed this series. We've really enjoyed these conversations. Uh, We hope you did as well and they provide some actionable ideas that can help your professional services organizations. Look for content and replay opportunities for these in our various channels. And we thank everyone again for participating today. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, team.